0: and listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources, because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Elle Gibbs about the importance of lived experience on boards and the Disability Royal Commission findings for disability services. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record. For me, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay respects to Elders past and present, and to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I support the the Uluru Statement from the heart, and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Al. Al is on the Board of Australian Progress, and was previously on the Boards of Electronic Frontiers Australia, Blue Mountains City Council, and Radio Blue Mountains. Al is an award-winning writer with a focus on disability and social issues. She works as a consultant for a wide range of disability and community organisations, big and small, providing expertise in strategy, policy, communications and change-making advocacy. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Al. Thanks so much for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. And before we delve into the topic, as always, I just want to dig a little bit deeper about you. Tell me, what was young L like and when did you get your first inkling that you might end up as, well, as a consultant and or as a board director?
1: <laughs> Look, I was always someone who cared about fairness. I was one of those kids who protested at school about things not being fair. I was often that kid who was questioning and pushing back. I'm entirely sure that I was a total pain in the ass at times. Um, I asked a lot of questions about how things were and I didn't always take things at face value. I was a pretty driven kid, but I wasn't always an easy kid to get along with. So particularly as a young person and to be honest, as a middle-aged person, I'm not actually that much different. I've always been a bit surprised by leadership opportunities. I've had quite a few but they've happened to me rather than me seeking them out in a kind of five-year plan or particularly deliberatively. I see leadership very much as a service to my community. So being on boards fits with that. And it's I think about it as how I can use my skills and expertise to deliver for the people that I'm honoured to represent. So I certainly had no great ambitions to be on boards or even to be a consultant. I have ended up as a consultant a lot of the time over the years. I've had a consultancy for a long time because I am a disabled person and because this kind of work suits me a great deal, but also because I have a very particular niche (laughs) uh, expertise that is of great usefulness to organisations in small chunks. So it suits a consultancy very well. And uh, it's something that I enjoy a great deal.
0: I just want to return to the school stuff because you said, in my head, you said troublemaker, but I don't think that was the words that you used. That's pretty
1: much what it was.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm wondering, were you involved in the um, SRC and or the school council at school?
1: No, no, that was always far too uh, organised for me. I was not involved in those kind of formal structures at school. I was pretty shy and I found school pretty overwhelming. I was very, I was a lot younger than than most people my age that went through. So I'm very glad they don't do that to kids anymore. It was something that I really struggled with. I was 16 when I did my HSC. So it's a very challenging thing to be a lot younger than your peers. And as I got a bit older, and particularly as I moved into the community sector, it fitted me very much. I found my people. I found my community of people who were dedicated to Making change. It was a very diverse industry and sector, filled with the kind of people who'd grown up like I had and had the kind of life experiences that I had had, and also lots of others as well. And so, I really value the community sector to this day, and I've worked in it for thirty years.
0: Thank you. Well, thank you for giving us a bit of a flavour of young L, Al, which also just so happens to be a little bit of a flavour of not so young L or more experienced L. <laughs> So let's turn to the importance of lived experience on boards. Actually, to start with, what is lived experience? Talk us through actually what lived experience is and how that might be of value to boardrooms.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think some of us, and you know, I've started to refer to lived experience as lived expertise because a lot of the time in the disability community we talked about lived experience as, not even necessarily being about the person themselves or that they just know a disabled person or are related to a disabled person, and I don't think that's lived experience at all. For me, in disability world, like I've been disabled since I was 19, and so I have a great deal of experience of living in poverty, the income support system, using disability support services at home, having housing insecurity Having discrimination at work, discrimination everywhere, (laughs) as lots of other disabled people have. And so I think that brings a sharpness to my understanding about those issues. But I'm also a white settler person. So there are lots of things that I don't have lived experience of. And I think it is really important to be clear about what we do and don't have that experience of. I've also developed a degree of expertise around disability issues as a professional person. For example, I have a significant expertise around the NDIS and around very nerdy parts of disability policy at a federal level, and that is deeply connected to my lived experience, but it also builds upon that and deepens it in a way that gives me authenticity when I talk about it. I'm often in consultations where about disability where I'm still often the only disabled person in the room. And I find for disability specific consultation, and I still find we're in 2023 and I'm still shocked that these things happen, but I can talk both about my professional expertise and my lived experience at the same time. So for example, I, in a previous role, I was a spokesperson for a national disability organization during the first year of COVID. And I could talk both about the policy asks that we needed and what needed to change for the community, but I could also talk about being surviving the pandemic as an immunocompromised person who couldn't get their disability supports anymore. So I could talk about both things at the same time and I think that brings a huge amount of value. It's not abstract for me. It's not abstract for the community that I belong to. And when I go into a consultation or into a conversation about disability, I bring not only my own expertise but the expertise of my whole community with me.
0: It's so interesting, isn't it, how I do obviously a bit in the women's space and in conversations about women, you would never be doing a consultation about women, not with women, having a room full of men, for example. Can you imagine? You just can't. Probably many years ago that is what happened like we've all seen pictures of here's the room full of blokes determining abortion policy reform or whatever it may be but it doesn't happen now yet with people with a disability it's like oh well you know I know somebody so therefore I let me tell you what I think and I'm sure carers have an insight but it's a insight as a carer, not as a person with a disability or family or whatever, you know.
1: Look, definitely. But also lots of carers are also disabled people. And I think that this idea that we are separate groups of people isn't always the case. And I think a lot of the dialogue goes around those lines. Anyway, I think also with lived experience, there's an accountability. Like when I am in a representative role, I'm also accountable to the community that I'm representing. And I don't always get things right. God, who knows? And so I get called out or called in. I get people asking me to raise particular things, to bring things up. I'm connected into a community of disabled people around this continent who want change. I feel very honoured to be accountable to a community like that. But I think it's a really important part about that lived experience that people are not there in isolation.
0: When is a person with a disability, and this might be the wrong wording, so please pick me up if it is, when is a person with a disability in commas is just a person on a board who happens to have a disability versus when are they the representative as you are, like, or, or uh, is it quite possible you just have a number of hats like other board members that sometimes you change <laughs> at various times?
1: Uh, it depends, I think is the answer, like, when I was on council, for example, of Burman City Council, I wasn't elected as a disabled person. But with Progress, I am on the board as a disabled person. So I think that for particular industries such as the disability services sector or the disability employment sector, there is a strong incentive for them to bring expertise in who not only are Talking about and have expertise in talking about people with disability, but are people with disability anyway? You know, like accountants with disability, fundraisers with disability, lawyers with disability. You know, I have a great deal of professional expertise in a range of areas that I bring to a board role, but because I'm a person with disability with links into the community, that is also an asset to bring in for particular boards who have particular focuses for the disability community.
0: You've got an additional hat that others may not have, but it's in addition to those other ones, which, you know, I often say on on this podcast that I'm an advocate for diversity, equity and inclusion in the boardroom, but I would also love a time where I can have a conversation with a person with a disability who's in the boardroom, not about their disability in the boardroom, but about, you know, I don't know, they might just be a risk expert. And it's balancing those things up, but I feel like it shouldn't always just be the disability hat as well. They could
1: just be an expert in their field. Yeah and as we'll talk about with progress as it turned out having a disabled person on the board turned out to be I had a whole bunch of skills and knowledge that they needed that they didn't actually know was needed at the time so yeah.
0: Okay talk us through how you ended up in the boardroom of Australian Progress.
1: Of course so Australian Progress is a national organisation that works across civil society to, it does a huge amount of things, it does training, it does investment, it does focusing and supporting new campaigns. They're doing an amazing amount of work at the moment about The Voice and uh, with the passing the message stick work and Common Threads, which is coming up. So if you've got any First Nations listeners, uh strongly urge you to get along to Common Threads. So I've known about Progress for a while and they do a big conference. Every couple of years called Progress. And so I went to the 2019 conference. And as it turned out, there were a range of really difficult issues for a range of disabled people at the conference. And I was asked by a number of people to basically take it up to Progress and to talk to them about that. And to, for Progress's credit, the then deputy CEO, who's now the CEO, engaged with me in really good faith. And we spent about three months meeting and talking about what had happened and how to fix it and what progress could actually do around addressing not just the concerns that disabled people had raised about the conference, but the fact that they'd been raising them for some time and nothing had changed. And so there was a degree of like, really, come on, you're meant to be, you know, the leading civil society organisation, you know, what are you doing? And at the end of all of that process, they approached me and said, would you like to be on the board? And I do have a rule of one not-for-profit board at a time. And I had recently stepped off from the radio station and it was like, well, this is a much bigger role than the radio station. And I hadn't done a big national kind of thing for a long time. So I thought it would be a good opportunity. So at the sort of beginning of 2020, I stepped onto the board. And as everybody knows, very soon after that, we were in the middle of a global pandemic and i've worked from home for a really long time so i am really used to remote work and doing things online the disability community has pioneered a lot of online activities because we have to i'm not very mobile so it's much easier for me to do things from home for most of us who you know people who live in regional areas and to be connected across the country so we have a lot of skills and expertise in running things online for an organisation that mainly ran events in person, everything had to go online. And so there were a lot of things that I knew about that were helpful and I think having me with that experience was useful and I had that experience because I'm a disabled person and I'm part of the disability community. So bringing that to the organisation in that way, it wasn't meant to be, but it turned out to be the way things are. And, you know, they were able to pivot and the staff did an incredible job to an all online organisation and things look very different now three years down the track and they've just absolutely kicking goals. Amazing bunch of people.
0: So with that, there was, you know, I was at the 2019 conference and I remember there being um, a bit of controversy about the inclusion of people with a disability there. And then Awesome that Progress then reached out to you and had these really constructive conversations. In addition to that, what difference did it make, I guess? And I mean that kind of in a constructive way. It sounds almost a accusatory and it's absolutely not meant to. But what additional benefit, I guess, is the question? Was it for you once you then join, also joined the board? So you've had these conversations, you've made some progress with Progress around inclusion, and then they say, join the board. And then there was the the pandemic, which meant that you had a layer of expertise that they also didn't have. But
1: Yeah, look, I think it's a really good question because I think sometimes board appointments can be tokenistic and they can be a way of saying to someone, we're going to do this, but we don't want you to actually get change. We don't actually want the organisation to move. We're not actually going to do anything. And I've certainly seen that happen before. But being on the board gave me an opportunity to input into the strategic direction of the organization, to engage with other board members, to for disability to stop being a fringe activity and to become mainstream progress business, because we should be. Mm-hmm. You know, disabled people are part of civil society. We're really good at things like campaigning. You know, we have a lot of expertise and skills in the very things that progress does really well. So we've done quite a lot. So Progress runs the Economic Media Centre, and which is a fully philanthropy-funded free media centre that aims to profile people with lived expertise, particularly on issues around poverty. And we've got a significant strand in there about disability. We've run free media training for disability organisations and disabled people. And they are working on some media training with Inclusion Australia and Down Syndrome Australia for people with intellectual disability, which is amazing. So that's happened. They've had their first Auslan Interpreter Fellowship, which is their flagship five-month training program, and that's had leaders from the deaf community in Australia being able to access the fellowship for the first time. They have developed a very significant amount of expertise in accessible online events, and they are now leaders in actually doing that really, really well and leading across the civil society sector. And so I think having me on the board has meant that this has continued throughout the last three years and more disabled people, they had a a seminar, a governance and advocacy workshop just after the election and I had a couple of text messages from people going, there's about 25 disabled people and disability organisations here, Elle. I'm not sure what you've done, but like everyone's here. (laughs) And it was really nice to hear that after three years, disabled people feel that progress is for them and that the community feels that progress's offerings and programs are as much for them as they are for anyone else. And I feel really proud of the small role that I played in that. But I think that having a disabled person who is a prominent disabled person on the board has been a signal by progress as well. That they are taking this seriously. Yes. The other board directors have been fantastic. They're here for the right. This has been something that the whole organization has been on board with. And I'd pay enormous credit to Kirsty Albion, as particularly, the CEO, who has driven a lot of this with a great deal of goodwill. And seeing the benefits, they've opened up an entire new customer base. In the disability community. I mean, if you just want to be mercenary about it, yeah, you're missing out. If you're not including us, there's an awful lot of us, you know.
0: <laughs> Is it 25% or a third or something like that of people have it? Dis-
1: yeah, so we're about 17 to 18% of people uh, and of working age people, it's about 12%. So we are a significant percentage of people and I reckon in the community sector, like in the social space, we're even more because... For many of us, it's where we can get a job. So there are lots of disabled people in the community sector. And the NDIS has brought huge amounts of money into disability. And so for disability services and the disability employment services, they also need to engage around this as well. But the customer base is large.
0: Actually, interesting then. So for disability service providers, employment providers and so on, do you know what proportion or roughly what proportion of those organisations have people with lived experience in their boardrooms?
1: Well, as you ask, uh, there has been some recent research from the University of Sydney that found that about a quarter have a person with disability on their board. And even fewer had employed, about 20%, a person with disability in their management, senior management. A quarter don't employ any disabled people at all. Really? Really?
0: Oh, my my God. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I've been banging on about this for a little while is that I think that disability service providers and disability employment services should have to both employ disabled people, particularly at senior level, and have disabled people on their boards. And not just one, but at least 50%. So the challenge is that... There are a few disability service providers who are taking this on. Life Without Barriers, which is the biggest disability service provider in Australia, they have people with disability on their boards and have for some time, and they have recently announced a 15% employment target, which is about the, roughly the percentage of us. The Disability Royal Commission has heard in their most recent hearing from a range of service providers that hauled them all back up in front of them, particularly the ones who had had significant abuse and violence against people with disability, particularly in group homes. And so many of them said, no, we haven't changed anything. We haven't changed our board. There's been no consequences for anyone. Everything's fine. We haven't changed a thing. So it was extremely frustrating to hear that in the last week. One of them in particular had basically said, got rid of three board directors and Said they're going to bring on people with lived expertise, which is good. So I think if you are making the amount of money that people are making out of the NDIS and you do not have disabled people on your boards and in your senior management, you are not getting the expertise that you need and you are not in it to serve the community. And that's something that we're seeing predatory providers, particularly for profit providers. Moving into the NDIS, who have no people with disability. None of them have been called before the Royal Commission. So I worry a great deal that we are being particularly silenced in the development of good and decent disability services, and particularly for people with intellectual disability who live in group homes, who will use disability services for the rest of their lives. They have so little say over what happens, and that is the recipe for abuse and violence. As we have seen, the NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commission came out with their own motion report recently that found 7,000 cases of violence and abuse in the last four years in just seven of the big service providers. I mean, it is shocking. It is just absolutely shocking. And yet these guys can have the front to get up at the Royal Commission and go, ah, no, no no consequences, we're not going to change anything, everything's fine. Everything's not fine.
0: It sounds like in the disability sector, progress is being made, albeit slowly and slower than perhaps it should. I'm wondering about other sectors that you might have seen that are are making better progress, if they exist, maybe they don't. Like are the refugee organisations or the organisations that work with people of colour or the organisations that are working with youth or, like, where are you seeing this lived expertise in the boardroom or lived expertise voice in decision-making forums being done well, if anywhere? Mm.
1: Oh, look, I think in a lot of the community sector it isn't done well. I think there are a lot of people who are experts in other people, (laughs) if that makes sense, experts in poor people, expert in homeless people, but not actually a lot of voices given to the communities that are affected. I really have a great deal of respect for the First Nations communities who have fought so hard for community-controlled organisations and are still fighting. The work that's being done under the National Agreement on Closing the Gap is extraordinary. And in our space, First Peoples Disability Network are leading a real revolution in how disability services are delivered for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with disability. And I think we all have a lot to learn from the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations are working and insisting on community control. I will let them speak for themselves and tell you all about that. But I think in our sector, in the community and social sector, we have a lot of work to do to really genuinely include the people who our services are meant to be about. And I mean that across the board. And it is a difficult conversation because it means giving up power. And it means letting go of being the expert. And I do some work with the Anti-Poverty Centre and they are grounded absolutely in the expertise of people who currently live in poverty. And, again, I admire a huge amount of their commitment to never wavering from that belief that people who live in poverty are the experts on living in poverty. It shouldn't be controversial, but that is still a radical idea. So I think the community and social sector could do more. I think in terms of the corporate arena, I'm a little more sceptical about how effective one person representing lived experience can be on a board. Maybe that's just my own inadequacy speaking, but I think that there is certainly a commitment in larger organisations to starting to think about it. I think for large disability service providers, it would be a really good place to start. To People are doing some of the board observership programs, which I think are really useful, and starting to do that. But I think the next step about bridging from the board observership to actual dedicated seats on the board and for people not to be alone on the board I think is really important. I mean, I would like to see NDIS funding only going to organisations that have 50% of disabled people on their boards. Like, I'm I'm dead set about change. Like, I'm I'm not mucking around here in terms of, of wanting a bit of stuff at the edges. Like, I think we need wholesale change and there are enormous amounts of incredibly impressive disabled people that I know who would make great additions to boards but also boards that then have to make change at a cultural level because that's how we're going to stop this abuse and violence against so many disabled people.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I'm just going to go yes, yes, yes to all of that. I think it would make a real difference. And people with disability, as we started with, I think, have a range of skills, one of which is bringing that lived experience or that lived expertise to the boardroom, and often have skills in a whole range of things that they can bring to the boardroom as well. So you know, it doesn't have to be a, oh, we need an extra person or, oh, we're going to miss out on this particular skill or whatever it may be. It's an and, not an
1: or. Yeah. We just had the, the second round of the scholarships for the company directors, training of people. So that's now 200 people who've gone through that and they've just have gone through the, about to do announce the third. So know, it's like, well, okay, if you want this training, we've all now done that as well. Like, I don't know what else we can do to show people how skilled that we are. But yes, there's a great deal of skill and talent out there among disabled people across an enormous range of things. One of the things that doesn't get talked about as much as it should, and you probably should talk to Simon Darcy, who's an academic at UTS, Dr. Simon Darcy, And he's done a fantastic amount of research around entrepreneurship and disability and found that disabled people are absolutely way out ahead in terms of the number of us who run our own business, like me, who are entrepreneurs, who are starting things, who are inventing stuff, who are doing amazing things. I mean, I I know half a dozen just thinking off the top of my head. And this is across the board. I and mean, part of it is because we get shut out of other opportunities, but part of it is also because we are really good problem solvers. We are really innovative. The world doesn't work terribly well for us, so we're pretty good at, at figuring stuff out and finding innovative solutions. And that's exactly who
0: you want on your board. Absolutely. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today?
1: That you're missing out if you don't have disabled people on your board. And if you're not connected in with the disability community, again, you're missing out. I think if you only think of lived expertise as a deficit, it's not quite right. I'm trying to be diplomatic, which, as you know, is not my strong suit.
0: (laughs) I was just thinking that was so delicately put when, in fact, you're thinking quite the opposite. But, yes, not quite right, yes. Is there a resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community?
1: Oh, look, this resource isn't going to be new to all of you, but I for disabled people, I strongly I cannot recommend the Disability Leadership Institute from Christina Ryan highly enough. I've been a member for a really long time, almost since the beginning, and I'm one of the experienced leaders. We have had a, a kind of monthly get together for several years now, and we are busy folks, but we all join no matter where we are. And Being part of the DLI has been a really important part for me of finding community among other disabled people who are doing amazing, interesting, astonishing things all over the place. So I think for any disabled people who are listening, I can strongly recommend the DLI for membership, but for all, there's so much more there, including the business directory and board opportunities. And for the peer leadership group that you get, it's invaluable.
0: And indeed, for those that are listening that are reflecting right now that in their boardroom they don't have any people with a disability and you've reflected on what Elle has said and gone, hmm, we're really missing out. It's not quite right. We probably need to. I spoke to Christina a few weeks ago on the podcast and you can go to the Disability Leadership and they will advertise the board roles and you will get access to these hundreds of incredible people with a disability who can make a huge contribution to your boardroom in oh so many ways, including as people with lived experience or lived expertise and all of the other skills that they bring. Oh, Al, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to share with us here at the Take On Board podcast. I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and... You know, like I said at the start of the show about I support the Uluru Statement for the heart. I also support diversity, equity and inclusion in boardrooms and this is yet another way that we can take that up, I guess, and advance. it. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together so I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board in Facebook to find us. I'd really love it if you could also do some of the other podcast things. Share with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And, well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.